0: Our Father in heaven, thank you that you love your church more than we ever could. Thank you that you have provided us with each other to care and nurture each other. And please would you show us the various ways in which you would have us do that as a church family here this this morning. As we look at this passage, please would you speak. Please would we have hearts that are receptive and uh, would understand your word and do it. For the sake of your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder what has surprised you most as we've been going through this book of 1 Timothy over the last few weeks. What's been your biggest surprise? I think for me, and I guess perhaps for you, it would be this. When Paul laid down the criteria for leaders of the church back in chapter 3, he paid so little attention to Bible teaching gifts. Which doesn't mean, I think, that we just ignore, switch off now as we look at the Bible together. But it is that Paul values and God values godly character, as Andy was showing us a couple of weeks ago. Now, it might be a surprise that that's what Paul had to say about elders, but it shouldn't be, because the whole book is about godliness in the church. Just remember back to chapter 1, verse 4, if you want to flick back there, where the false teachers were promoting controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. Uh, that is God's household management, God's church. For God is building the church. God is calling people out of a fallen world and recreating us together into a new people, a heavenly people, an outpost of God's new creation on earth. And so even last week, uh, Paul wrote, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how to conduct yourself in God's household. The thing God is building, the church. We've seen that false teachers are destructive to the church. And that true doctrine is essential. Teaching the Bible well is really important. Because true doctrine is necessary. But it doesn't come by itself. Notice the last verse uh, from Andy's passage last week, verse 16 of chapter 4. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do you will save yourself and your hearers. Now salvation, we know, rests on trusting in Jesus. And Paul is not denying that. And to believe in Jesus, you have to have right truth about Jesus. You have to have healthy doctrine. So the, the book has argued over and again. But right Truth produces godly living. The church that has the truth ought to live out the truth in all sorts of ways. That's true for the elder and the deacon, as we saw in chapter 3, but it's true for the whole church, as we'll see in chapters 5 and 6. Godliness springs from the truth about Jesus. We saw that in in 3 verse 16. Just look down at the page with me. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is... Jesus, and the truth about Jesus. And so we ought to be godly. Uh, Salvation of others depends on us commending the gospel, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. So what does godliness in our community life as a church look like? Our first point, uh, verses 1 and 2, treat the church as God's family. In verses 1 and 2, Paul returns to a theme that's been running right through the book, which is this, that the church is God's family. And in 4 verse 12, Paul commands Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. See, Timothy is probably, at this point, about my age, late mid-30s. He's quite young to be the bishop of the whole church in Ephesus. And so it's possible people are looking down on Timothy because he's too young to do the job that he's been called to. And so Paul says, no, set a good example for the church in how you deal with different ages, different stages of people, the false teachers and everybody else. And so we get to to 5 verses 1 and 2, and Paul gives some specific instructions to Timothy about how he's supposed to take care of the church. And he gives us two verbs here, do not rebuke harshly, but exhort... And that's not just in relation to the older men. That's in relation to all of the different types of people in the church. In fact, it's the same uh, verb that Paul uses of his own ministry, back in chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia. I didn't rebuke you harshly, Timothy, I just urged you, I exhorted you, I encouraged you. And so you should do the same thing in your ministry. Don't be harsh with people, but do extraordinary. Clearly, Paul is an apostle, and the things that Paul is saying here to Timothy are uh, are not take it or leave it. He commands these things and expects to be obeyed. And I guess Timothy is in the same boat. But his manner is supposed to reflect his position within the family. Older men are to be treated as fathers, But suddenly, older women are to be treated as mothers. His peers are to be treated as as brothers or sisters. Paul adds, doesn't he, at the end of verse 2, that he's to treat younger women with absolute purity because I guess there's temptation to sexual sin. Uh, You wouldn't uh, accept sexual sin within a family. And so we shouldn't accept it within the church. We're to treat one another as a family. Of course Paul is writing here to Timothy in particular but Timothy is to set an example in in 4 verse 12 and so I guess this is for all of us and in fact that's true These, these relationships that we're all in with older people and younger people and people of different genders we're to treat each other as though we were part of a family because we are to be respectful deferential mindful of our age and our position just like we should do at home And by the way, as a passing note, I think that's why so much focus on the eldership falls on how the family is run. Because you can't lead the family, the household of God, if you can't run your family, your household at home. Because the church is a family. We want to see that the family is... is God's basic building block for society. It is the fundamental unit of society. And so it is the model for the church. The church is a family. And how we play our parts in that, how we relate to each other, reflects on whether we've grasped the fact that the church is a family. And that is the idea that runs from these first two verses through the rest of the book. Okay, the idea of the church as a family. As believers together, we need to watch our life as well as our doctrine closely. And the first thing that Paul wants to say, which is going to take the rest of our time this morning, uh, because it takes the rest of our passage this morning, is this. Look after the most vulnerable believers. Verses 3 through 16. The particular vulnerable group that Paul is uh, addressing, in particular here, is widows. Notice that in verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And it's there again at the end of uh, verse 16. So that the church can help those widows who are really in need. And I guess if you've read your Bible for any length of time, if you've uh, been around all over the scriptures, you can't really avoid the theme of God's care for widows and orphans. God cares deeply for the most vulnerable people in a society. Uh, Widows, for example, would be uh, physically weaker, uh, in danger of assaults, Unable to do many of the jobs that required real physical strength in the, in the culture of the day. And actually not encouraged to do those jobs either. Those things were not acceptable for women. And so you really had very few uh, things that women could do to earn a living. And so if you're all alone, you're physically vulnerable and not able to pay your way. Widows and orphans... Simply fall between the cracks. Uh, The family is the the unit of society that cares for all the most vulnerable people. But if you're a a, a widow or an orphan, well then you're uh, totally exposed. And So James 1, for example, verse 127 says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. God cares deeply for the most vulnerable people. And it's clear, isn't it, in verse 16, So the church can help those widows who are really in need. The church should be caring for the widows. We should care for the most vulnerable people. And so as we get into this text and and try to understand who those particular widows are and how we should care for them, I want to give us three things that hopefully will give us a steer in how we understand and apply this passage. And the first is this. Uh, Paul is specifically talking about a list of widows. Just notice verse 9. No widow may be put onto the list of widows, and there's more to say. That is, a list of people that the church would take care of in perpetuity. People who were onto the list, that's it, for the rest of your, your life the church will care for you. Okay? Uh, and so Paul is not saying everybody else is excluded. There are clearly other people who are vulnerable for a short period of time perhaps. Somebody between work who has no savings, they're vulnerable. And Paul would obviously want us to think about caring for them. And indeed, he'd want to apply the same sort of criteria to caring for them. But nevertheless, he's talking specifically here about uh, long-term vulnerable people. The second thing we need to realise is that the the list of vulnerable people might be different for us, culturally. uh, In those days, the widow would be vulnerable because she couldn't work, and because she was physically in danger. For us, that's less the case. I mean, I, I'm sure you'll want to tell me that, that women still can't get all the jobs and so on. But actually, there's no particular necessary reason why a widow would be worse off than a widower, necessarily, in our culture. Uh, few jobs require the sort of physical strength that would have been required in those days to do manual labour. And so the particular vulnerable people that we might want to think about caring for as a church will certainly include widows and orphans, but might include a wider range of people than Paul is particularly picking up here. Okay, that would be the, first thing, the second thing to say. The third thing to say is this. I think we're in a very different place to the church in Ephesus. See, there's a very real danger for us, I think, that we don't see any of the needs. We look around our church, and, and by and large in the West, we're quite affluent. There are very few people who are destitute amongst us. Uh, We're quite individualistic as a culture. We maybe just don't see it. We maybe trust too much in in pensions and state benefits to take care of people. You know, it seems that the the government has taken away from the church the responsibility of looking after our own people. They'll do all that now. And so we just don't see the needs. And the challenge for us is this. As our church gets bigger, and by the grace of God, it's grown in the last few weeks and months, and we're very thankful for that, as we get bigger, we're not going to be able to know everybody. I won't know everybody. Andy won't know everybody. None of us will know everybody really well. And so there's a danger that If we don't have our eyes open, someone who's really in need might fall through the cracks. Now, that's a challenge for us. A very different challenge to what Paul is facing here in Ephesus. See, in Ephesus, they have this list of widows. And it seems to me that nearly everybody's on the list. Where we might have an empty list, as it were. In the church in Ephesus, Paul has to place strong restrictions on who is allowed to go on the list. Because it seems like everybody gets to go on the list. You see, Paul is is all through this letter concerned for right order, godly order, so that everyone is cared for, but is cared for in the right way. Because the church is bearing witness to the truth we believe as we hold up and hold out the gospel as the pillar and foundation of truth. And over and over again, did you notice what Paul says? Verse 3, give proper recognition for those widows who are really in need. Or verse 5, the widow who is really in need. Or verse 16, so the church can help those widows who are really in need. Did you notice? Really in need. Paul wants everybody to be cared for, but the church has particular responsibilities for particular people. I mean, to look at what those, those uh, responsibilities are. Paul seems very clear that there is to be a list of vulnerable people for whom the church should care. We should give proper recognition to those who are really in need, verse 3. But we should also exclude certain people, verse 9, verse 11, do not put on the list. And so who are these real widows? Well, first of all, Paul says, real widows are really Vulnerable, verses 4, 8, and 9. Notice at the beginning of verse 5 where he sums up uh, this vulnerability idea. Verse 5, the widow who is really in need and left all alone. See, the the assumption that the people are needy runs right through this passage. I I guess if you have a wealthy widow, uh, the millionaires, I guess you don't enroll her on the list. I guess she's okay to look after herself. You don't need to worry about that. And so neediness is explained, for example, in in verse 9. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60. She should be old, unable to work, unable to marry, unable to find any sort of income for herself. Somebody who's really, truly in need. I guess the assumption would be younger women can work. But a widow is only truly vulnerable... Because she's all alone. I think that the basic, uh, the basic principle, I think, of verses 4 to 8 is this. The family is the unit of care that God has created in the world. Okay? The family has first responsibility. In verse 8, Paul tells us that even the Greco-Roman culture of the day, who, let's be honest, shouldn't be followed in all things... They understood this. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, even the unbelieving world of their day understood that you care for your family. And notice the word especially there, which gives priority to the immediate family. Now, of course, in those days, the immediate family might be very much bigger than ours. It wouldn't be parents and children, it would be parents and children and grandparents and uncles and aunts and, and, and the servants who worked on the farm, anybody who was depending on the household for their livelihoods would be a bigger number of people. But I think even our own individualistic culture today, we understand this, don't we? We understand that if your parents are in hard times, you don't just kick them out into the street and let them starve to death. We understand that you take care of people. And Paul would say... To the extent that your culture gets this right, and to the extent that the church gets it wrong, we are worse than unbelievers. Because the unbelieving world would never do that. But notice that we're to to care for our families beyond our immediate households. I think that's what the word especially there means in verse 8. You have uh, all of your relatives, big circle, and you have especially the household, a smaller circle within that. You're to care for your relatives. Think, for example, of Boaz with Ruth and Naomi in the book of Ruth. Boaz was not the kinsman redeemer. He wasn't the nearest relative who should be taking care of Ruth and Naomi. But the man who was the kinsman redeemer was unwilling to be kinsman redeemer. and So a transaction happened and Boaz took care of uh, these more distant relatives. I take it that's what's going on in in 16, the beginning of 16. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, that is, from the wider family, people who are dependent, distant relatives, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them. Do you see the priority? Family comes first. Taking care of your family is your responsibility. It's your first responsibility, verse 4. It's your especially responsibility, verse 8. It's a responsibility that shouldn't burden the church, verse 16. But of course, we're not to do these things because the culture says so. There's plenty of things that we shouldn't do that the culture says we should do. Okay. We're to do it because it pleases God, verse 4, if you'll look down with me. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice, that is, uh, believing uh, children and grandchildren. By caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, just as they were taken care of in their, in their youth. Four. this is pleasing to God. God has created the world with a family at the centre of, of society, and the family should care for its own. The basic unit of care in the world is the family. Think back to, to Mark chapter 7, for example where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees because they have the rule of Corban. We, we, we saw that uh, also uh, in, in Matthew, I think. The idea is, uh, God has said in his uh, Ten Commandments, take care of your parents, honour your father and mother. But, but the Pharisees are saying, no, no, don't do that. Take all of your money and give it to the church. And Jesus says, you've taken God's word And broken it in order to put your words in place. You have a responsibility to your family. Over and above your giving, actually. If Jesus is to be believed, I take it, he is. As Christians, what might that mean for us? Who, Who are the elderly relatives or the infirm relatives or the people who are effectively widows in our families that we ought to care for? Even if there are closer relatives to them who are unwilling because they're not Christians. Are we going to care for people because they're our family? And that's what families should do in God's world. So the real widow is really vulnerable because she's all alone. But being all alone is not enough either. See, there are plenty of all alone people in the world that the church were not taken care of and shouldn't be taken care of. Now, there are plenty of people in the world for whom we're not responsible. Now, the church in Ephesus had a long list of people who were, who were widows who were being taken care of. And Paul actually says, stop it. There's loads of people on your list who shouldn't be on your list. Because real widows are really believers. Verses 5 and then 9 and 10. Now, remember here that Paul is saying the church is God's household, God's family. He's speaking of the spiritual reality, spiritual family. And so the principle that he's just explained in verses 1 and 2 about biological family, and through verses 4 to 8, biological family being the, the paradigm for the church, you then have to ask the question, well, who's part of the spiritual family? For whom are we responsible? And the principle here is this. The church has absolute responsibility for her family. But we need to be clear who is part of the family. Okay? It's very clear in verse 16 that the church should care for the real widows. Must care for the real widows. Full stop. Absolute responsibility. But who is part of the family? And Paul says, real Christians are really godly. Notice verse 5. The widow who's really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray to ask God for help. The reaction of the real believer who has nobody else to turn to, has no means of supporting themselves, will be that she turns inevitably to cry out to God and say, God, I trust you to deliver. Please provide what I need. She'll pray. She behaves like a believer. But more than that, verses 9 and 10, Paul goes on to list characteristics, godliness, in the past of this person, okay, the church is to weigh the, the, the past behaviour of the person to be sure that this person is a true believer. Someone who is genuinely godly. And I'd love us to notice two things. Let me, let me raise two things before I read the list to you. Okay? The first thing is, let's be clear, these are principles and clearly there's some flex here. So, uh, when, he, when he says raising children, if you don't, don't have children, if you can't have children, that doesn't rule you out of the list here, okay, and so on, in all sorts of ways in this list. okay. These are general <laughs> principles. Uh, they're the ordinary markers of godliness. Secondly, though, uh, notice how this list is similar to the, the qualifications for elders and deacons back in chapter 3. As we read this list, I want you to notice... Um, The the way these are sort of matching feminine godly characteristics, focused on domestic life, the family life, and and welcoming and so forth, that prove godliness, just like there were the same sort of characteristics for elders and deacons in chapter 3. In other words, as you look back at the list of elders elders and deacons in chapter 3, don't think those are the characteristics that somehow is a higher standard of godliness that elders and deacons have to hit, I think what Paul is doing here in in chapter 5 with the widows and chapter 3 with the elders and deacons is saying this is just godliness. This is what every Christian should aspire to. And somebody can't be an elder or a deacon if they don't match this. But this isn't a higher level of godliness, except possibly with teaching the Bible, which is a skill, a gifted thing. Paul is simply saying people should be godly. That's true for elders and deacons, but it's also true for all of the vulnerable people that we should be caring for in the church. So notice verse 9. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, which is to say beyond marriageable and working age. I guess for us that might be slightly higher. We might say 65, 70 for for work or so on. Has been faithful to her husband, that is to be a one-man woman. Remember that the elder or deacon was to be a a one-woman man, it's exactly the same idea, which is to say, uh, Paul is not saying, if you've been married twice, that rules you out, you can't, you can't grab your pension. He's saying, it's qualitative, Remember Andy was explaining that to us a couple of weeks ago, it's a qualitative thing. When you're married, are you dedicated and faithful to your spouse? And Paul clearly goes on in verse 14 to say, some people who have been widowed should get married again. He's not saying, and if they get married a second time, then they should never be put on the list 20, 30 years down the road. He's saying, are you a one-man woman? Is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, if she has them, showing hospitality, notice, just like the elders, welcoming strangers, washing the feet of the Lord's people in humble service, helping those in trouble, Perhaps similar to her troubles, uh, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Notice, just like the elders, she's to have a reputation for good deeds, is well known for her good deeds. Verse 10. Just like the elder is required to be held in high esteem by outsiders, to have a good reputation with the world. And for the same reason, I take it, the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. As we hold up and hold out the gospel, it's really important that people look at what we're like as people and say they really believe what they're teaching. It really changes and it really makes a difference. We're to commend the gospel by living as Christians. So where have we gone to? The church ought to have a list of the people for whom they have responsibility to care. I take it that list, that care, ought to be administered centrally. Not in an ad hoc way. Think of Acts chapter 6. and make sure that everybody gets appropriate care. The church must care for those who are truly widows, truly vulnerable, and truly exposed, all alone, unable to care for themselves. And they must be real believers. They must show themselves to be believers by the way they've lived. I think what that might mean for us, there's a whole bunch of ways we could cash this out. We could spend the rest of our time thinking about this. Let me give you one illustration. We we were praying for Ed and Charlotte uh, in our prayers a few minutes ago. Imagine Charlotte uh, persuades uh, a Somali Muslim to become a Christian, but her family cuts her off. She's vulnerable. She's in her 50s. She's never had a job. She's raised a family, but now she's left that behind to trust in Jesus and has been cut off, has nobody to care for her what do we do? As a church, what do we do? Now clearly that's somebody who hasn't met the criteria for long-term godliness. She's just become a Christian, but she's totally exposed, totally vulnerable, and a real believer. What do you do? I take it as a church, we care for that person. I think we must. It's commanded. We can multiply examples, and perhaps afterwards you can give me some real examples for our own church here. Let me just say, though, as, as we move on, If that is you, if you are in the sort of situation where you are exposed and vulnerable, please let us know. It might not be obvious to look at. We'd love to know, and we'd love to take care. And let's be vigilant as a church. As our church grows, as we get to meet more and more people, these situations will come up from time to time. And I might not see them, Andy might not see them, the elders might not see them, but you might. And we have a responsibility as a whole church to care for those situations, so please come and let us know. Time is nearly out, but let me, just for the last few minutes, look at some more exclusions that Paul puts in place. He excludes two groups of people, possibly overlapping groups of people, and he gives us two reasons why. Paul is concerned, you see, that the church should really take care of its own, but shouldn't think they have responsibility for people who fall outside those categories. And he gives us some lists of people who might bring the church into disrepute. So we're concerned about holding up and holding out the gospel in godliness. And so here are some people who, if we take care of them, might lead them into ungodliness. So first he he excludes the self-indulgent in verse 6. The widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. That living for pleasure idea is the same idea. If you've been in in our Revelation Bible studies the last few weeks, uh, the last study we did uh, in the middle of the week, um, the prostitute Babylon with her luxuries, flaunting her wares, It's the same word, same idea. Okay, The image here is of somebody who is um, totally self-indulgent. It may well be the same person who, in in chapter 2, verse 9, turns up at church dressed immodestly, decadently, with the hair up and the pearls on, and basically flaunting her femininity and saying, come and get some. It's the same idea. And Paul says... This is the opposite of the godly woman who's on her knees praying for God's deliverance. This is the person who's living for pleasure and not for God. And he says she is spiritually dead, even while she's breathing in and out. She's not part of the church. She's not one of ours. She's not somebody who is demonstrating godliness and so is excluded from the list. Just because she's a widow doesn't make her our responsibility, Paul then spends more time, secondly, on verses 11 to 15, on excluding the younger widows. It seems there are a couple of dangers that younger women can fall into, though I want to stress this is not something that's exclusive to young women. Um, But that happens to be the context in Ephesus. I think there are particular women that Paul has in mind here. And he says, look, verses 11 to 12, young women may be drawn away from Christ because they long for sex. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Now, Paul is not against marriage. We know from chapter 4, verse 3, that the false teachers in Ephesus were against marriage. Paul is pro-marriage. He says in verse 14, they should marry. Okay, Paul is pro-marriage. But it seems that the type of marriages here are unhealthy marriages, Marriages that draw people away from dedication to Christ. Most likely, marriages to unbelievers. Like Solomon's wives, drawing, drawing him away to worship false idols. Particularly if you're a woman, in their culture, you took on the religion of your husband. And so if he's an unbeliever, you effectively give up Christ in order to be married. And Paul says, such a thing is a scandal for the church. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't bear the burden of caring for such women because if they turn away from Christ in order to, uh, to be married to somebody who's not a Christian, well, that brings shame on the church. Paul says, you should marry within the church instead, verse 14. They should marry, they should raise a family, they should do it within the, the, the church, which I appreciate uh, raises all sorts of questions that you might want to ask me about later. But we all know somebody, don't we? I can certainly think of a couple of friends who gave up Christ. Seemed to be going great guns, but they were so determined to be married that they went after unbelievers and are nowhere Christianly now. And Paul says, if you enroll those sorts of people on the list, you bring shame on the church, so don't go there. They might dishonor Christ by abandoning him for for sex and marriage, but secondly, they might disrupt the right order of other people's homes by their gossiping. Verse 13, just look down with me. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house, households again. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. Are they spreading the false teaching in Ephesus? Possibly, we don't know. Are they just gossiping? Are they just going in and disrupting the natural order of the other families? We can't be sure. But we do know that if the church takes responsibility to to support a young widow for the rest of her life, she's got a lot of time on her hands. Doesn't need to work, doesn't need to be married. And so, she can keep herself busy with being a busybody. What's the the phrase? You know, the devil makes work for idle hands? It's precisely that idea here. It's disruptive. And so for the sake of right order in the church, younger women should not be enrolled on the list. They should be expected to uh, find work Or find a Christian husband, which I take it by the way means that men need to step up, if that's you, and ask the girls out. Um, Just saying. Well, we're out of time. Paul has made caring for the church family in the right way with necessary qualifications a serious responsibility for the church, it's a serious responsibility for us. Let me, if I can, just draw out some implications that we can chat about over coffee. The words first, verse 4, and especially verse 8, mean that you must care for your family as a matter of God-given order. It is your first responsibility. But secondly, notice that the church is your family. And so third, we must care for all of our most vulnerable people. Uh, with certain limits obviously that means we're going to meet the short term needs of those who've fallen on hard times and just need a help for a month or two while they get themselves sorted out but there ought to be a formal list a formal role of those for whom the church takes responsibility longer term and that should be centrally managed, Act 6 perhaps we need to raise up deacons who can take care of that for us as a church, a serious thing we ought to think about notice that our our responsibility is to take care of needs, not wants again that comes from elsewhere but we we shouldn't be uh, maintaining people in a middle class lifestyle, we have responsibility for uh, a roof over the head, food on the table clothes on the back but those are serious responsibilities notice that plenty of people are excluded either because they've not shown themselves to be believers all because us supporting them might lead them to fall away in the future and bring the gospel into disrepute. It'd be wise. But above all, notice that if we manage the church family well, if we take these responsibilities seriously and show people that we are genuinely a family, that genuinely loves its own, as we watch our life as well as our doctrine closely, as we care for each other, we are going to demonstrate the truth of the gospel to the watching world. And it will help us in our, in our mission as a church. Lots to think about. Lots of questions, I'm sure, will come in my way. Please do come and ask them. Let's just pray. Our Father, you love your church. And you desire that we love your church the way you do. That you've given us each other to care for each other. Some with great means, some with little. Some with great need. But as we care for each other, as we love each other. So you will uh, manifest your glory in the church. And we long to be people who live as you would have us live. And so uh, testify in our lives that the gospel works, the gospel matters and we love it. Because we love you. Please reshape us. Please show every one of us places where we need to be challenged this morning. Show us as a church where we need to be challenged this morning. That we might better reflect your goodness and your priorities in our lives. For the sake of your name. Amen. Well, thank you very much indeed, Ash. Um, Please do take your sheets away. I'm sure you've made some uh, notes.